How much do you love a great tiki drink, with or without a paper umbrella? Listen to this discussion to learn about how to do this at home. It's on the tip of your tongue. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. Thanks for joining us today. We are here with Matt Petrak, the co-author with Carrie Smith of An Essential Book for Your Bar, Minimalist Tiki. He is the power behind CocktailWonk.com. And his writing has been recognized by Tales of the Cocktail and by magazines and others. This man knows his rum. Welcome, Matt. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. So we have lots to talk about. So I want to talk about the book, of course. But before we start talking about the book, I'd really like to talk to you about how you got to be here. How did you decide to start Cocktail Wonk and all of that? Uh, uh, So for 30 years, I was a software engineer uh, software architect. And somewhere along the lines, I, I met a couple of friends and they were making some what we would now call craft cocktails, rather crude at the time, but I was sort of very intrigued by the idea of like keeping your glassware in the freezer for a Cosmo, for example. But that sort of sparked an interest. And that was right around the time the cocktail revolution was really sort of uh, kicking off. And at some point, you know, I, I was started buying things. I built a, a home bar and a house that we had renovated, and I was making more and more cocktails, and they were getting more elaborate, and you know, started doing more research. And my wife, the co-author of the book, said to me, I love you, honey, but you need to tell other people these things. <laughs> you're, you're just a little, <laughs> a little overboard here. And, and prior to that, I had been a writer. I had written about uh, Microsoft Windows. I, I disassembled Microsoft Windows to figure out how it worked, wrote about it, wrote several hundred columns about it, wrote two books about the internal workings of Windows. And so yeah, it, was, it was just a matter of adapting my passion to something completely different. But I started it in 2013 or so and originally had one vision to, to cover all sorts of spirits and cocktails and the science behind it. And somehow it became very focused on rum and tiki. So what is it about rum that really grabs your attention? Rum is just is, is such an amazing, diverse spirit. And, you know, talk to any rum enthusiast, and that's the word they'll use. But it's a very diverse spirit in that it it's made all over the world and has such vastly different flavor profiles that, that you know, I, I, I will say I love bourbon. I love scotch whiskey. I love brandies and cognac. I love all the spirits. But, you know, a bourbon, a bourbon has a flavor profile that's readily identifiable. And scotch whiskey, you know, you could say this is a scotch whiskey, this is a peated whiskey, this is a, a sherried whiskey. But with rum, the difference between, uh, a, say, a Jamaican overproof rum and a Martinique, uh, you know, rum agricole and a Claren from Haiti, they're just so different that it, it's, really, it's a much broader palette to play from. And there's, and there's so much history 
to it that it goes back to, to 1650 or, or slightly earlier, you know, predating even, you know, what we consider the beginning of Scotch whiskey. So there's all this history there. And it's fascinating. The more you dig, the more you learn. And unlike the other categories, it just hasn't really been explored anywhere near in depth that the enthusiasts like me are trying to elevate rum the way that, that bourbon has been elevated, Scotch whiskey has been elevated. And what is it about the the way it is made or the, I mean, it's really not the ingredient so much as the way it's made in all these different places that gives it so much variety of flavor? There's a, a number of different factors. For one, it's just the difference between you know, for example, if you were to make a, a, a Scotch whiskey, you would use everybody would use barley, and it's a, a standard grain, and you may have peated barley, for example. But with rum, sometimes it's going to be um, a cane juice, you know, fresh pressed cane juice. Sometimes it's going to be a cane syrup, which is cane juice that's been reduced down. Uh, but most often, it's going to be molasses. So that's so that's one source of difference there. Then the the fermentations. Some fermentations are only a day. Some go for a month. Some use a very standard yeast. Some use wild yeast. There are some that they don't even add yeast to. That the natural ambient yeast in the air creates these wild flavor profiles that you don't see in any other spirit. And then, of course, uh, when you then, you know, in rum, it's very common that you that a company will make an unaged rum, completely unaged, but they make a, make a 21 or 25-year aged rum. And, you know, and then in the Caribbean as well, the aging is much faster. That, you know, they like to say that the Caribbean ages three times faster than Scotland, for example. Because of the climate? Because, because, because it's warmer, because it's so much warmer there that, that the heat in the Caribbean sort of accelerates many parts of the aging process. So a, an eight-year rum, you know, a rum that says eight years aged in the Caribbean would be the equivalent of like a 20 or 25-year rum from Scotland. So, all right, you really love rum, and I think that's really fabulous. And so how did you transition from rum <laughs> To tiki. So uh, it was actually the opposite way. Like I, I transitioned from tiki into rum. Okay, so tell me about that. Yeah, yes. So I had always sort of had this fascination with, with tropical cocktails, the, the, you know, the, the pina colada. You know, I, I first had a pina, pina colada when I was 18 on a cruise ship, but that notion of pineapple and coconut. And then uh, one t- years later, I had what today we would call a pretty, pretty properly made Mai Tai. And so I was fascinated and intrigued by, the, by these flavors. It was around 2007 when my wife and I, again, the co-author, uh, we had, had <clears throat> bought a house in Seattle and we were renovating the house. And we, we said, look, there's a spot and we're going to put a bar in there. We're going we're gonna to build out a bar and have all the stuff for, to a really cool home bar. And, but we had to move out of the house for six months. And while we were living in an apartment waiting for the house to be done, my wife bought me uh, a Beach Bumberry book. And, and so I started reading the book, and, and I was just enthralled by, like, wait, you're saying the tiki came from a guy who was born in Texas and that the original tiki drinks were, were made in Los Angeles? And I just loved that. And, and, um, but part of that was he was like, well, you know, you, there's rum is a, a Demerara rum, and this rum is a Jamaican rum. I'm like, okay, what are you talking about? Like, I, you know, I live at the time we lived in Washington State. You'd go to the state liquor, you know, there was a state controlled. An ABC there. store, basically. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. And you're like, okay, well, there's Bacardi, 
and there's Captain Morgan, and there, and you're like, where is this Jamaican rum? Where is what is a guy in a rum? Where do I find it on here? And it and it was this, like, okay, I feel like there's they keep talking about these, and I don't, I can't find them here. And luckily, we would, we would travel a lot, so when I go to other countries, I would like, okay, now I'm in England, and like, yes, they have Guyana rum here, they have Jamaican rum, they have Haitian rum, they have all these other rums here, and we would literally start filling up suitcases. So we would, <laughs> we would like bring home, like if we came home with less than. 16 bottles from whatever country we traveled to it was it was a failure so it was from that that I, that was that was like there's all these different things out there and you know i have a very sort of analytical like if like something interests me i will just dive in and just just rip it apart and get down to the, to the lowest level and so rum provided that perfect opportunity for me there's so much there and and, and you know and and it's continued it hasn't been like you know a year or two and i've learned everything i need to know it's like no i'm still learning things and do you keep copious notes when you taste um i'm not i'm not a person who who is fixated on tasting notes and like you know i have my own perceptions about a rum taste like and and i can identify you know if somebody gives me a sample i could say oh that's probably that's probably a jamaican rum but i'm not i'm not really a person who who's obsessed about like you know there's a hint of banana in there and you know i'm not i'm not building an archive of like you know here's the 500 rums i've tasted you know and i have friends that do and they're very good at it and i love them and i trust what they say and i go back and read them for for things but it's not it's not my own my own particular you know, angle on things. And so what is your particular angle? So I, so primarily I would say it's, it's really understanding how we got to that point. Like that, like why, you know, people say Jamaican rum is funky. Why is that funky? What, what differentiates that flavor from say a Barbados rum or from a, a Guyana rum? And my, you know, my, my background is, was in physics. So prior, my degree, college degree was in physics. And so I always had the scientific bent. And so, okay, let's figure it out what, what makes Jamaican rum funky. Oh, it's, it's this fermentation. It's these ester, like, you know, and that, that set me off down this path of like, of like rum flavor science of like, you know, like what are these things we taste that they're, they're actually, you know, that, Acids have a flavor, and alcohols, different alcohols have a flavor. And when you put them together, they create esters, which have their own flavors. You know, I, I love to give this example of that if you take acetic acid, vinegar, and you put it with butyric acid, that, um, I'm sorry, yeah, with butyric acid, uh, which by its smell smells awful. It smells like vomit. Uh, but if you put this vinegar and vomit, these two compounds together, they create ethyl butyrate, and that smells like pineapple. So that that was you know so you know that's that's one of the angles is like really understanding this like like where does the flavor come from what is a pot still what's a column still how do they how do you know why do they make different flavor profiles um, and and so you know that that's been was my initial sort of large thrust and then more recently it's got into the rum history of of documenting how we got here and you know things like I've written a book it's not out yet but a book on London dock rums and British Navy rums um, sort of rewriting history in the sense of of taking what 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 we think we know and what brands tell us about these things and going back, well, let's go back to the original sources now, especially now that we have the internet and we can find archival records. Like, let's see what, what history tells us. And so mm -hmm. that's opened a whole new dimension for me, which some of it's coming out in the next book I'm working on. 
I would love to see you do something about the rum that was made here in the New Orleans area because of all the sugar cane that was being grown right. here. Right. And people always say, well, there was no commercial rum or, you know, rum yeah. distillery here. It's like, yeah, because everybody just made their own. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. And there, and it's, and it's, it's interesting as, as I've been here in Louisiana for over a year now and I've yet to really dig into the Louisiana um, sugar cane and rum making uh, historically, although it's it's somewhere on the list of things for me to do, but I do. What's interesting though is a lot of because if you go back to the you know late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds, uh, a lot of the research I'm doing uh, involves like basically scholarly journals at the time of like you know sugar, you know sugar, um, how much sugar can you get from this variety of cane and what's the optimal way to process it and so they were basically what they would call sugar stations basically sugar basically the whole industry around sugar being sugar molasses rum that whole thing was considered sugar and that there were basically sugar laboratories and, and exploratory things like in various places around the around the Caribbean, but there was also one here in Kenner, which I just learned recently. Uh, but they were all basically writing these journal articles about about sugar and rum and what they had learned. And um, and so a lot of, some turns out a lot of the, some of the really interesting finds have actually come from the Louisiana Sugarcane Journal, uh, which was just like, you know, sort of very ironic that I now live here. Oh, goodness. That's really interesting. I, I used to work at uh, the sugar factory at LSU. Oh, okay. And uh, so I would be there for the cane crushing and uh, the sugar making and all of that sort of thing. And there were always the students who would hang around and wait so that all the castings and things like that could be turned into somebody's homebrew. Yes, yes, <laughs> you know? yes, exactly. And and that was, that you know, the early days of rum, the that it was always the sugar that was the most valuable. And it was like the discards, the, the skimmings and things like that, that we were like, okay, we can make rum out of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There was a lot of that <laughs> going yes. on at LSU. Yes, I, can, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. And, and the whole, and just how sugar is made in molasses. It's, it's fascinating once you sort of get into it. It's kind of fascinating yeah. to see how it's, how it's done and how it's evolved over, over the centuries. Okay, so let's uh, let's talk before we actually talk about the book and the tiki-ness yeah. of it. Let's talk a little bit more about um, what you're doing with um, the Museum of Dispil- Distilled Spirits. Yes. So, um, so Jennifer, who you know, you Jennifer have, Lawrence. Jennifer Lawrence. Yes, uh, she uh, a friend of hers gave her my name, and she approached me. And just told me, you know, what the Museum of Distilled Spirits is, and the idea is to have basically a museum dedicated to all of the spirits, not a specialized museum like the Scotch Whiskey Experience, for example. Uh, but she is currently looking for specific directors, like subject matter experts, in the different in each of the different spirit categories and. And for example, one of the early things I did was suggest instead of doing whiskey that you should do bourbon and scotch whiskey because they're sort of two, even though they're both whiskey, they're very different and the people, people who may be interested in scotch whiskey may not be interested in bourbon. So, so things like that. And then each, so there'll be a director for each category who's, who's in this early stages is really about just creating like an example of what a, a trail would be. So a rum trail, a scotch trail, a tequila trail. 
uh, and then teaching some classes around it. And then from there, it's, it's going to evolve on. Um, you know, it's, it's rapidly evolving right now, but she's very, very enthusiastic and very dynamic. And, and so uh, I've, ar- I've already sort of uh, hopefully got her connected up with the Scotch whiskey expert. So, so you are the, the rum expert. I am, I, am, I am the rum expert. And so what is your title? Uh, I th- oh, I should know this. I believe it's like Director of Rum Education, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. That's great. Yeah. That's great. All right, so let's talk Tiki. Yes, love so, to. So you said that Tiki is what brought you to rum. So tell me how you really started to enjoy Tiki. I know you were talking about pina coladas and all right. that sort of thing, but how you went past the uh, – the big f- fruit juice bombs right. to right. Uh, to the more subtle um, right yeah the yeah the yeah the, the the classics yes yes I would I'd say like like almost everybody you know it starts with Jeff Berry yeah and and you know reading his books and trying to approximate those recipes uh, those you know from the books from like two thousand seven um, forgetting forgetting the name. Uh, Forgetting the name of the book I have, but but it's one of his main ones. But yeah, it, it started there, and then you know I was lucky. Like I, I feel very fortunate that I came into this right around the time that that the craft cocktail movement was starting. You know, sort of like two thousand five, two thousand seven, um, and it's a time. It was it, small irony. Of this is at the time two thousand seven. It was really taken off in Seattle that you had people like Paul Clark and and uh, Robert Hess who were there in Seattle at the zigzag and the craft cocktail, and I was oblivious, like like across the lake, oblivious to all this was happening there. <laughs> um, but they were all, but they were also putting out resources like their, their their blogs were starting to appear, and so you know you know as a tech person, I'm naturally you know using the computer all the time searching. So I had a, you know, my natural inclination, like, I like this from Jeff's book. What else is out there? Can I make a falernum? So I would use the internet a lot to find uh, these other other resources out there and started experimenting on my own. Um, and, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm kind of an obsessive personality in certain ways of like, okay, you know, the, the, um, like I, I don't need one guy in a room. I need four. Now I need ten. You know, and it's, it's you know, at some, you know, at some, like it, before we moved out here, I counted all my rums, and there's something like 350 rums in my house. <laughs> but you know, you can see that that's a sort of you know obsessive. Like, I just, if you're going to do something, go all, all the, the way. way. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so you know, and so you know, in my small home bar, like, okay, well, we're going to do proper crushed ice, and we're going to start making syrups, and and. And sharing them, and I was also was very lucky again. The sort of the rise of social media, as I would start, you know, put a picture on Instagram and get a good response to it. And like, well, that worked. Let's keep doing more. And then I would start, and through that, I'd find other enthusiasts. So, you know, a large part of the tiki, you know, the craft tiki movement today, and all the people who were involved with it, it was fueled by the rise of. of easy social media sharing of these things and so you're finding each other and trading ideas off each other and you know and it was those that people those people in that community that we wrote the book for is like these are the people like we're there are people like us and we are fortunate enough that that you know i have to blog and have material to draw from but we're going to write a book for them and and we didn't have to go find a publisher it was like we know we're like we have a vision and we're just gonna go execute it and you know consequences be damned 
So I want to ask you something that is one of my little tiki questions that I have. And that has to do with garnishes. Yes. You do discuss in the book your home issues about, you know, does everyone have an orchid just waiting to be put in every glass or whatever? Um, How important do you think the garnishes are as opposed to, you know, I I can see a, um, a smoldering cinnamon stick actually adds to the flavor and the experience of drinking a drink. Whereas I'm more likely to take the orchid out before I drink. And so even though I know you can eat an orchid, I am not going to eat it as a part of my drink. So other than just a presentation issue, where is it important to have the garnishes and where is it not? So yeah, great question. Uh, Like, we, we know tiki is escapism. That is the presentation, you know, in, this, in the same way that a well-prepared dish, you know, is artfully arranged in a plate is more appetizing than, you know, things in the square box. You know, the garnish plays a large part of the escapism aspect. And I think for a lot of people, it's an element of creativity. Like, it's, it's yet another way to sort of, like, take this thing you love and go over the top. It's like, I, I just today saw somebody craft uh, they had a jet pilot they'd made a jet pilot and they had crafted an actual it looked like a plane out of out of a a toothpick an orange peel a lime peel and a cherry and i was i was like well done (laughs) i mean like the the peels were like were had slices in the middle and were feeding through each other i'm like that that's impressive like i was like you know well done for that and and i think you know in terms of social media it helps you sharing it and you know and other people respond to it you know obviously the drink needs to be a good drink it needs to be balanced you know use good ingredients and you know, and the, the truth is is that you know if it's just me and carrie and we're like okay which is you know at the end of the day time it's happy hour let's have a you know let's have a one of the recipes from the book but I'm not going to go all out on the garnish, but if it's like, oh, this is you know a fun new recipe I tried, uh, I'm gonna you know I'm feel like this one would be fun to post on Instagram. I have an idea, you know, I'll go all out with the garnish, especially if you have company. It's a low bar to impress people, and so <laughs> I love to just like just like blow them out of the water, like holy cow, I had no idea. So, all right, one more question. Yeah. So uh, you know the the group drinks yes. that come with straws where right. everyone drinks out of the same bowl. So how do you rate the experience of drinking your drink through a straw as opposed to by sipping it from the glass? That's a, that I've never really pondered that. Um, you know, I, I know that there are ways that there are certain recipes that adapt better to that, that sort of format. I, you know, obviously, we, you know, especially if you have a very long straw, and that's sort of a thing, it's like four <laughs> feet long straw, you, you don't get the same, necessarily the same aromatic experience, for mm-hmm. example, if, you know, again, with the flaming cinnamon stick or, or other aromatics. Um, it's much more of a fun communal experience in terms of, of the drink. I think... My guess is oftentimes what happens is, is, you know, you talk and you chat or whatever, and at some point the, the drinks going to start diluting more and more, you know, or, you know, unless you have a bunch of thirsty people and it's gone, <clears throat> gone really quickly. Um, I have to tell you, that reminds me of a, of a fun story. 
uh, that I that I had. We were we were once doing a, a yard party, and we had these communal drinks, and I had pre-batched the drinks beforehand, and and put them in the refrigerator. And so, you know, by the, by the, you know, the fourth or fifth round, we were all a little tipsy mm-hmm. and, and I was like, okay, go good fifth round. And, and I, you know, grabbed it from the refrigerator and I threw it in a bowl. And about 10 minutes later, Carrie says, you forgot the ice. <laughs> so we're all like, we're already a little tipsy and now we're drinking basically undulant <laughs> tiki drinks. And it was like, every, yeah, that, it was not pleasant the next day. Okay, so let's talk about the book. Yes. Now, I know that you published the book yourself, so you were uninfluenced by some publisher's idea about how the book should should be put together and what it should cover, but tell me how you decided what needed to be in there, what was important. Uh, so the, the way this came about is I originally had wanted to write a rum book, which I am writing now, which will be entirely on my own. But at the time, we were shopping it around publishers, and nobody would take it up. Like, oh, there's already rum books out there. And But he said, if you want to write a cocktail book, like we've seen your blog, you want to write a cocktail book? And I'm like, eh. But, but you know, I had at the time, I had written an article entitled Minimalist Tiki. Uh, it's back in 2016. And, and I was like, no, I'm not going to write that. No, I don't want to do that. I want to write your own book. And it, it, at some point, Carrie said to me, if you don't write Minimalist Tiki, the book, somebody else is going to, and you're going to be beeping, you know, <laughs> pissed when this happens. Mm-hmm. And like, you're right. And so, you know, I set out like, okay, what, what would go into it? And, and basically what you see in that is the first half of the book. <clears throat> the first half uh, is essentially my vision of what the cocktail book should be of, you know, I didn't want to rewrite what Jeff had done. I didn't want to rewrite what Martin Kate had done in his book. You know, I had my own spin with a, with a very home centric take on things, but okay, that's not a, that's not a large book. I want, I really want to make a statement here. And meanwhile, from like the social media, like the people like Jason Alexander in the book, I realized there's like, you know, what I want, what I wanted to call the modern tiki warriors um, in the book, they're the modern tiki vanguard. <laughs> this is, this is what your co-author you know, gets you to do. And it's a good choice. Um, <clears throat> but basically these people who are like on social media every day, here's a new recipe, here's a new garnish. They are, they are the people leading the modern tiki charge. You know, antique classics are great, and we celebrate the classics. But like, we need we need to evolve. We need new things. Keep that enthusiasm there. And so, people like Jason Alexander and Brian Maxwell, uh, and Jeannie Grant, they're doing great stuff out there, and they're not getting the attention that they need. You know, it's like they they have social media following, but like, you might want to put them in a book. Like, we want we want to you know. The, Put them front and center, and 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 then that later evolved to and these bars as well. You know, it's like like you know we love Smuggler's Cove, we love we love Latitude Twenty Nine and some of the other big tiki bars. But let's like there's other bars who are really doing great stuff. Let's put them front and center as well. And so that that's basically what the second half of the book was. And I mean, I, mean, I didn't have to do quite as many recipes. That's true. <laughs> yeah, I mean my recipes are in there as well. But I'm like I really wanted to be this to be a a love letter to the to, to the community to the community and like these are the, these are the people who are doing great stuff that you should celebrate. And so it was fun, right? It was fun. That's good. And we did the whole thing in like 
four months. It was insane. Wow. Yes. And in the middle of that, I wrote a separate book. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so now you've started publishing. Yes. So, yeah, so we, we, we published. So that was, you know, we, we our, our press is Wonk Press. That's the first book. Uh, more will come from Wonk Press. But that was, we said we, I, I had written books previously and kind of knew the publishing model. And, and you learn that at the end of the day, everybody else gets paid before the author. And so, you know, that, that, that $30 book that you, that's a $30 list price book on Amazon that you pay for, you know, you pay $19.99 for, at the end of the day, the author gets like a dollar or $2. That's the publishing model. And I'm like, that's not profitable. We can't sustain like that, you know, unless you sell 100,000 books or something like that. And so, you know, we weren't initially looking at self-publishing, but then uh, a famous bourbon writer who does, is self-publishing and said, hey, look at these these consider using a print broker. Basically, the the companies that do the that print the professional books, like the big professional cookbook, you can use them too. You just got to pay a lot of money up front. And so, and so we looked at it and like, yeah, this is not going to be a cheap book to print. It's, it's 300 pages. It's hardcover. It's full color. It's the very best paper. Like we said, we, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it well. So we don't have a fan, you know, it's not a $5 book to print. Right. But, you know, we were fortunate having both left our jobs, uh, our careers to pursue our passions and, and having sold our house that we, Seattle, the real estate market had gone up, that we had the funds to be able to like to to drop five plus figures mm-hmm. on on by, or <clears throat> having these books printed. They mm-hmm. were printed in in um, Korea, and then and then you know it's 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 really real when you realize there's going to be five thousand pounds of books coming, <laughs> and I need to find where we're going to put five thousand pounds of books, and and yeah, and so it's, it's it's a whole lot of logistics behind the scene, but at the end, it's like we make far more money than you know everybody else. And so, do you think that it's different right now because you're selling during the pandemic when things are a little bit more shut down and maybe not all bookstores are open and things like that? I don't know. That's a great question. I mean, when, you know, we had sold fairly well. The book came out in right around actually Tales in 2019. Mm-hmm. Like I think my the very first copy I sold was the first day of Tales 2019. I mean, we had sold prior to that online, but the first, like, I have a book and I'm giving you a copy of the book to buy was the Tales 2019, and you know it had sold fairly well, and we, and we had gone through two printings already, and then when the right around the pandemic, the time the pandemic hit, like our sales shot up, and that's not what we were expecting. Right, that there was suddenly like more people are going to make drinks at home, and were, were were the sales that increased through you directly, like through your website, or were they through Amazon or something like that? Um, well, that, that we, we know that they were all through our website because that's the only place we sell it. Oh, okay. <clears throat> yeah, so that, I mean, that's the, you know, the other part of the publishing equation is if you want to sell your book on Amazon, they will take, they say, okay, you'll sell us for 45% of the list price. And so you'll do the, if you run the numbers on this book, 
you're like, okay, if we sell it through Amazon, we're back to again making a you know a few dollars a book. Not worth it. So, so in addition to publishing it, we are also the distribution. So that we you know our our five thousand pounds of books are in a storage place. We every week or so we go grab another ten cases of books, bring them home. Our living room has boxes and mailing envelopes, and we have a little printer, and we you know we have the little e-commerce software we use, and like we literally if you buy a book on minimalistic.com it's us we are going to put an envelope box it print a label take it to the post office so so yes in that regard we, we know exactly how many are being <laughs> sold and who's buying them um which is which is good in, in that regard but yes. yeah as we said we're we've taken on every aspect short of actually printing the book we've done everything everything and, and yeah but but and so we are extremely appreciative of every sale and I mean, but we work for it so do you think that you'll ever publish other people's books or at, at this point is it really going to be great, yours great question we are we are certainly open to that we've already talked to a few people as well and and it's you know the the idea of being a micro publishing house is is a little shocking but it it could happen that we're, you know, we're basically, you know, what we've told people is that there's a spectrum of, of possibilities of like, there are many ways, many roads getting a book published and the traditional route may be best for you. But if you have, if you're willing to do these things, if you, if you actually want to make more money and are willing to do these things, we can provide you an alternate route. So, you know, we don't have any more from anybody else currently lined up, but we are certainly open to it. And we've certainly been talking with people about, you know, here's how we can help, you know, almost like an a la carte model of like, okay, we can do this, 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 or all, all of the above, but you figure out what works best for you. Well, Matt, I want to thank you so much for coming here today. And um, I hope everybody decides that they are very interested in buying this book if they don't already have it. Minimalist Tiki. Published by Wonk Press. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure being here. Thanks for joining me today, listening to Tip of the Tongue. We are part of the Nitty Grits Network of the National Food and Beverage Foundation. Come visit us at our Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. You can find us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.